Open the Dumbledore. Open the Dumbledore, my boy. Open the Dumbledore. Open the Dumbledore. Open the Dumbledore. Hal, open the Dumbledore. Open the Dumbledore. Open the Dumbledore. And on Wednesdays, we open, open the Dumbledore. The Dumbledore. Open, open the Dumbledore. The Dumbledore. Open, open the Dumbledore. This is episode 268 of Alohomora for March 30th, 2019. Welcome, listeners, to another special episode of Alohomora. MuggleNet.com's in-depth exploration of the Harry Potter series. I'm Michael Harley. I'm Alison Sigurd. And I'm Rosie Morris. And it is my absolute pleasure to introduce a voice that you will probably recognize. It is the wonderful Micah Tannenbaum who is joining us for this episode. Hi, Micah. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for Yay. joining us. Isn't Micah Yay. Tannenbaum that guy who doesn't know anything about Harry Potter every time he comes on our show? <laughs> mm-hmm. I was going to say I'm surprised that I was allowed to to come back on the show. It's been quite a while. <laughs> when was the last one? It's a, a good question. It's it's I'm not definitely sure. I was been trying to look back. <laughs> at least a year. At least. I have no sense of time, though, so I'm not the person to ask. <laughs> it's the problem with all of these long-running Harry Potter podcasts. They'll merge into one, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We just uh, we blend into one another after a while. But uh, <laughs> I'm excited to be back because I think the best part of being a, a guest host is that um, you just you have free reign. You can you can say whatever you want, and at least I hope I can. Or I, or I know I have in the past, to Michael's point, or, or at least not that knowledgeably. So uh, it I, is I, always fu- like funny after Micah's on, and we look at the iTunes comments, and people are just like, "Who's this Micah Tannenbaum? He doesn't know nothing about Harry Potter." And just like, guys, yeah, <laughs> I, I read the first chapter of Prisoner of Azkaban uh, last night for the first time, so I'm excited to talk about it. <laughs> As Micah has just said, we are reading Prisoner of Azkaban, Chapter 1, <laughs> Owl Post today. Uh, that is part three of our seven-year anniversary celebration. We are revisiting the first chapters of each of the seven novels, along with some familiar special guests. Um, make sure you guys have read the chapter before listening, just as Micah has done. Um, and do give another listen to episode 20, which was way, way back in January 13... January 13? January 2013. Um <laughs> I was on that episode as well, a whole six years ago, which is crazy to think about. Um, but yeah, we're, we're giving it another shot, seeing what else we can dig out of this 10-page chapter. <laughs> <laughs> and, and congratulations. I mean, seven years is, is quite a lot of time to be doing podcasting, and, and I think that it's a, it's a pretty uh, nice accomplishment. So Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Last night, we uh, looked at how long it would take us to finish another complete reread. <laughs> 13 years listeners 13 <laughs> years well, god don't tell them that they're gonna be like all right strap in we're ready <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah one of the things that i find really interesting about doing it though is that you notice much 
different themes and and different things to talk about as you go through it uh, as an adult, quote unquote, as opposed to when you may have been reading them as a kid. Right now, for for whatever reason, um, over on MuggleCast, we have uh, neglected Half Blood Prince, uh, and we're going <laughs> through it chapter by chapter. And I think the reason was because the podcast came out. Um, right after Half-Blood Prince was released. So we probably have about 100 episodes worth of talking about that book, but we never went chapter by chapter. Mm. Uh, but sure. it is so interesting to uh, to, to really dig in deep uh, to each of these chapters and, and to look at it with a little bit of a different lens and a little bit of a different perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And so much has changed kind of society-wise and just kind of, you know, technology-wise and things as mm. well between when the book was written and now and also when we when we read it six years ago and now mm-hmm. um so it's Absolutely. quite interesting to to yeah take a look back and kind of think of it as kind of writing from its time and also how it reflects on us today yeah it's, in some ways it's very scary how relevant it still is today particularly yeah. as you get later on into the series um so yeah. why things like us and MuggleCast are so important. <laughs> and before we get there, we just want to let you know that this episode is sponsored by Sam Omen on on Patreon, and this is his first episode sponsor. So thanks, Sam. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Sam. I really appreciate that. And we also want to make sure and give some shout-out maximas to listeners out there who contributed to the discussion on our one of our previous episodes. That was... Episode uh, 266, which was the uh, first chapter of Sorcerer's Stone, which was the beginning of this whole anniversary uh, with the first chapters. And I wanted to specifically shout out Maxima to a few of you, including Ravenpuff and the Statute of Secrecy, Lisa and that time Remus Wadawasid Voldy. You guys had a great conversation comparing Voldemort to various fascist leaders throughout history. It kind of started with deciding whether Voldemort was more of a Hitler or a Stalin, and you went from there. Um, so, and, and it was really interesting to see kind of how you guys took other characters from the books and placed them in, in comparisons to other historical figures um, to kind of match these up. And that was a really rich, lengthy discussion. So thank you guys for that. A chain of comments. I also wanted to shout out to the Silver Quill, HB Boy Thirteen, Follow the Butterflies, and Phoenix and the Flame uh, for having a lengthy conversation about why Dumbledore should have been in Slytherin. You guys used some great textual evidence, uh, specifically from the chapter, and discussed went back to the discussion about kind of Dumbledore's more cold nature in that chapter. So that was a really great chain. And of course, shout out Maxima to all the rest of you who participated in the discussion for the episode, including another Weasley, which, by the great username, <laughs> you have to read it that way, uh, Arthur Dent, KCL, Blood Charm, Davy B. Jones 999, Griffin Prefect, Griffin Puff Girl, Herbology Newt, How Am I Going to Translate This, Puff the Magic Raven, Mersmerges Turquoise Shoes, and Spinner's and we all appre- mm-hmm. we appreciate all of you guys participating in the discussion. I see a few new usernames that have joined us um, in the comments. So thank you guys for joining us on the main site. And just because that episode has ended does not mean the discussion has. Uh, visit our main site, alohomorapodcast.com, and you can participate in the discussion. Three turns should do it. Chapter Revisit. Chapter 1. 
Owl Post. We start this third installment with Harry, under the covers, secretly writing an essay and desperately trying to be a good student. Between quick summaries of what has happened up to this point, we find that it is Harry's 13th birthday, and for the first time in his memory, he is actually going to enjoy it. Letters from Ron, Hermione, and Hagrid introduce key ideas for the plot of the book, and we start to see the first hints of a wider wizarding world. Harry goes to sleep happy for once that it is his birthday, and we are happy to return to his story. I like this chapter. <laughs> <laughs> it's very pleasant. It is. And almost very... completely free of conflict. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Which is unusual. I talked about on last episode how, like, I forgot how in some of these early chapters and early books, Harry is just like, I called him a cinnamon roll last time (laughs) because he kind of is. And this is just another one that like, look at precious Harry being precious (laughs) in this chapter. I think this was a really good one. Um, if, If you're an adult who's coming to the books for the first time and you kind of don't really want to read the kids books version, so you kind of maybe skip over the first two. First of all, why would you do that? But if you did want to do that, um, you can really start with this book as it's you know starting to get into the darker themes. And this chapter introduces you well enough to all of the details that you need to know to be able to not read the first two books, if you get what I mean. Like It, it tells you all of Harry's backstory, essentially, um, yeah. and sets up his friendships, sets up the fact that he wants to be going back to school. And yeah, everything that you need is in this chapter in order to skip the first two. That's what's, uh, I think, fascinating to me when we kind of look back at, at, we actually have some hosts in, in our, uh, um, on the show that did not read Sorcerer's Stone first. Um, mm. and I, I, like, I think, uh, I know Katie mentioned that she read Chamber of Secrets first after seeing the movie and then back and went back and read Sorcerer's Stone. Um, and a lot of people who've seen the movie first before, uh, reading the books and, I it, it is interesting to see how Rowling kept up this these quick summaries for the story for quite a while so that I suppose if you did want to join in late and not read the other ones you didn't have to uh mm. it wasn't necessarily essential you could just hop in here and get going and I feel like this kind of follows a, a tradition of other children's books you know where If it's in a series, they start with, here's a quick introduction to these characters and what's happened to them up to this point. You know, like I'm thinking, I mean, Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys does the same thing, right? There's always a, Mm -hmm. not too long before they had just solved this case. That was the last book, you know? (laughs) Um, I think I'm trying to remember other ones like Boxcar Children, I think does the same thing. That there's a lot of these children's series that start in their first chapter with some mention of what had happened before. But that doesn't always necessarily impact what happens in that book. Yeah. So it's interesting because most of that stuff does impact what's going to happen later in these books. But she still includes this, here's who this is, you know, and here's what, it ha- what has happened. And mm. here's the Spark Notes version of what you need to know. <laughs> I guess it's kind of a child development thing, like helping them remember what's happened in the previous book and, and kind of solidifying the, the learning aspect of what they've mm. had, had previously. Um and maybe, yeah, I mean, children's books are often gifted by parents or aunts and uncles and, and people who maybe don't realize it's part of a series. So that if you are just gifted <laughs> this middle book, then you would still be able to read it. Yeah. It's quite nice. I agree. And and I think it's just enough, to your point, the, the summary, because sometimes, 
you know, looking through the other summaries that have been given, I feel like there's too much detail, too much information, and almost too much to not make it believable uh, mm. in some ways. But this is my favorite book, so I really enjoyed uh, opening up Prisoner of Azkaban again. My favorite character uh, didn't show up in this chapter, uh, but uh, just everything that surrounds Lupin, I know that'll make hey. Michael happy. But, uh, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed, uh, kind of getting back into this book and, and maybe now I'll just go all the way through instead of just stopping at, uh, the end of the first chapter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's what I was thinking about that with like the amount of detail that she gives, because I, I went and looked back, um, because as we're recording this listeners, um, we haven't all listened to the Chamber of Secrets first chapter episode because it's just being released the day we recorded. But uh, I went back to look at that because I wasn't on that episode and I went back and skimmed that chapter. And uh, that that about has the first chapter of Chamber of Secrets has about two, two and a half full pages of summary where the story stops dead and the action, the current action of the story stops just to give like full pages of what happened in the previous book. And here that happens. I think Rowling does it a lot better here than she did in chamber. Yeah, definitely. Um, and she's being a lot more careful with the information. What's, what's also really interesting about what happens here with this first chapter summary is that there is Barely, 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 barely a mention of even what happened in Chamber of Secrets. All it is is that Harry's like staring out the window and it has the summary says, Harry thought about what happened last year. That was messed up. He put it in a box and didn't (laughs) think about it anymore. Like, like it was, he doesn't, they don't even, she doesn't even go into detail about what happened in Chamber of Secrets and none of the characters acknowledge what happened in Chamber of Secrets in their letters. Um, Like you fought a giant snake and lived and you fought with Voldemort's ghost. Like none of that is put forth. Harry does think, Harry does think he's like, wow, I'm lucky to have made it to 13. And it's like, whoa, wow, that's a big, wow. Okay. That's pretty dark. Yeah, it's interesting though that because I I think that's kind of why it's it, what's interesting about the connections as far as we t- when we talk about ring theory is that uh, prisoner is technically connected to order, right? Mm-hmm. As far yes. as ring theory fits, but a lot of people tend to compare prisoner tonally to half blood, and I'm assuming that connection is frequently made really? because both books entail not encountering Voldemort at the end. Like, Voldemort isn't mm. the main goal of the two books. And the f- we've talked about that as well in Half-Blood Prince, that so much insane traumatic stuff happens in book five, and then in book six at the beginning, Dumbledore literally says to Harry, like, are you all right? And Harry's like, yeah, I've decided to be fine about all of this. Mm. And that's kind of the <laughs> end of what happened in book five. So... The the two books are very like a uh, prisoner and half blood seem to be very self contained stories in many ways. Like yeah, they both also rely a lot on kind of meta stories. So they the, mm. their plot lines are looking back beyond Harry's lifetime. They're, they're looking yes. at um, Marauders era essentially. Those two books. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting, though, too, because uh, obviously Half-Blood Prince and Chamber of Secrets have such strong ties to each other as well. Mm-hmm. Just the yeah. 
the underlying theme of of Tom Riddle and and everything that goes along with it. Just even now, as I had mentioned, going through Half Blood Prince uh, chapter by chapter, and and really, there's there's some unbelievable um, little nuggets that that tie into Chamber of Secrets, even going yeah. back to the same chapter number. Uh, never mm-hmm. mind just tying it to different events. Um, but it, you mentioned Order of the Phoenix. It made me think, especially with this chapter of, of Prisoner of Azkaban, Harry starts to get very frustrated, at least it seems that way, uh, when he's not hearing from his friends. And I know that that is um, something that more than frustrates him in the beginning of Order of the Phoenix. Um, mm-hmm. A little bit of a different... Um, you know, he, he's a little bit more mature at that point, but but I think that there's definitely that that tie-in where he's not hearing from the people that uh, he really wants to be hearing from. Well, I think Harry, whenever Harry feels cut off from the wizarding world, he gets most frustrated. But I, so I think, in a weird way, doing his homework has helped him this year mm. <laughs> because we didn't see him doing that in Chamber of Secrets, and in Chamber of Secrets, he is like devastated that no one has written to him that it's been almost all summer and he has no contact with anyone you know but in this one while he's frustrated by it it doesn't sound like he's quite as devastated mm-hmm. he's like yeah it sucks no one's really said anything i mean ron and hermione or ron tried to call but that was a disaster and like <laughs> that kind of sucks you know but i think he feels connected still through <laughs> through his homework <laughs> to where he wants to be and so he doesn't quite feel as isolated mm. Right, and then all he has to do is open the window and, and everything changes. Yeah. Much like Chamber of Secrets, too. Mm. <laughs> why does why does he have homework? I wondered that as well. Holiday homework? <laughs> See, Rosie, I'm I'm a little upset that you're you asked that question because I thought you would have the answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. English schools, you wouldn't normally have homework over the summer holiday. Um I wondered <laughs> if it was kind of a subtle hint towards what happened at the end of Chamber of Secrets, whether like they miss out on something important <laughs> while they were adventuring. So they have to No catch exams. Up, but... <laughs> so now you have to have homework yeah. over the summer. <laughs> but also this is the fifth week. So we, we heard that Ron had tried to contact him in that first week with that phone call, but he's now on week five of the summer holiday and he's now doing his holiday homework. So it, yeah, it's, it's quite late as well to have been sat around for five weeks not doing anything and then suddenly <laughs> writing an essay. Seems a bit odd. Not quite sure. Well, part of it was that he didn't he didn't have access to his stuff. Yeah, um, right. So he was waiting to. Get and his... I know in the U.S. in the, sometimes during the summer, especially if you're in like honors or AP classes or something, you'll have a little bit of summer work. I did a lot of it. Oh, gross. Um, mostly at the end of the summer because no one wants to think about that when you get out of school. <laughs> but. Uh, so I don't know if that's necessarily uncommon. It doesn't sound like they're doing anything like strenuous. It no, almost sounds like they're doing a lot of the, yeah, they're doing a lot of the like theoretical stuff during the summer. So maybe the plan is, okay, they'll do more practical stuff then when they get to school. If you if you know the theory, you know, in the summer and then they'll go over it and they'll actually get to practice it. Yeah, but he hasn't even got when his... they're allowed to. He's not got his third year books yet, so he's still reading his second year books. Oh, that's true. Hmm. It's just a nice way of tying in some weird wizarding history. <laughs> well, because some some of the the books though are are not they don't move from year to year. Like the history of magic doesn't change from year yeah, to year. True. As far as we know, the Thilda Bagshot stuff is continuous um, throughout their years. So yeah, uh, I don't know. 
Snape Snape also had assigned a book t- or a essay too about shrinking potions. Well, so. that's Snape. I don't know. Maybe it's just a sign that learning magic is getting harder as mm. time goes yeah. on. Or maybe Harry's trying to catch up on what he didn't do at all for the past two years <laughs> yeah. in history of magic. <laughs> We start jumping into the the fun little historical uh, alliterative names <laughs> that Joe likes. So we start with Wendelin the Weird and witch burnings in the, what is it, 16th century something? 14th century. 14th century. I have to say, Wendelin the Weird is one of my favorite throwaway characters in the whole book. <laughs> <laughs> 47 times. <laughs> Yeah, it's just, I don't know, it's just funny. And I think this is the book where I feel like we start getting, and we'll get more into this because we get quite a bit of this in this chapter, actually. We start seeing this world as a bigger world, I think. It's not quite so isolated um, as it was in the first two. And it becomes much more entrenched in, like, muggle history and muggle ideas and, like, intertwined with everything Mm -hmm. and international, which I think is kind of cool. Yeah. And that works as well with, I'm going to go back to it again, child development, because... Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, now Harry's 13, um, it, it, as, a, as a kind of element of puberty and an element of growing up, you know, our, our brains do change and we start becoming more outward looking as we get older. And around 13 is the time that you actually do start properly taking notice of the world around you. So it's it's a moment for Harry to stop being quite as kind of... Um, I'm not going to say selfish, but, you know, insular looking and start actually being interested in how he fits into a slightly wider picture. Um, so, yeah, it's quite nice to to start getting more of the, the general wizarding world coming through as he's developing that. Which And it's funny because I, I feel like most people think that starts happening in Goblet of Fire. But I didn't realize until I was reading this, I was like, oh, my gosh, they start mentioning all these things that are going to be you know, developing this wider sense yeah. here in this book. When it's a story in general that's very, very close to Harry. Yeah. <laughs> the major plot lines, you know. Um, speaking of Harry and his development, though, where did Harry learn to pick locks? <laughs> I think Rosie, Rosie suggested on the original episode that Fred and George taught him how to do it. Oh, that makes sense. Because he saw them do it in the second uh, <laughs> book. So... Maybe, maybe they've been teaching him tricks. <laughs> and it's quite a nice thing to be learning in this book as well, because obviously unlocking spells will happen soon and will be important at the end of the book. So The real question is, how did he lock the door after he picked the lock? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> he didn't. It's still just open and the Dursleys just don't look at that section. <laughs> Speaking of things that are sad and have to do with the Dursleys, <laughs> um... Harry goes back to his room, right? He's finishing his essay. And then we have this line when he's thinking about Hedwig, who's off hunting. And he says, he he says he wishes she would come back because, quote, she was the only living creature in this house that didn't flinch at the side of him. (laughs) Oof. You know, okay. So this is the first time, this is the first time in, in the two books that the first chapter we haven't spent with the company of the Dursleys. Um, which I think is significant in that, like, we're giving Harry some breathing space that he doesn't normally get. And it's nice that the addition here, too, is that he 
he and she'll she'll come back. Hedwig will come back into the chapter, and that Harry just gets time to be with. Like, and it's all like the cards are the the way that Rowling does the cards too is kind of representative that Harry's spending a little bit of time with the people who love him. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And so it's it's I think that's what makes this chapter more unique in the Potter series as a first chapter is because. As we said, there is little to no conflict, and the Dursleys are seen, but they're seen in a in a flashback to when Ron called the house. Um, but they're not in the present day action. Yeah, it's the least Roald Dahl description of them. Yes, yeah, so far. yeah. yes, exactly. They're becoming people rather than caricatures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think it's interesting in this quote too. I I guess I never I never read this part before, but it says in this house. Which is kind of nice because I think he's he's thinking of it like well he's been to other houses by now right mm-hmm. I mean he's been to Hogwarts and he's been to the borough and he's he's lived in a house for a while <laughs> at this point where everyone didn't flinch at him so he can kind of start separating I think what happens to him at the Dursleys yeah. with the rest of his life yeah which is kind of nice he's got alternative places to go now yeah 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 well and the dursleys are like he has a scheduled time when he goes to this house and then he has his majority of the year that he's not there so and that's become he's done that twice now so it's becoming a pattern for him that he's just kind of has to say to himself oh i have to be here for another like you know three months (laughs) and i can go home to hogwarts so yeah that's Mm -hmm. that's that it's a pattern he's finally gotten into. And also going back to our point earlier about how, uh, as you read through the series as an adult, you pick up on different things. And, and this is just going to the point of how the Dursleys really abused Harry throughout the course of his time at Privet Drive and and maybe Mm -hmm. not physically, uh, but certainly emotionally and, and, and mentally and, I think you know, we see that during the phone call uh, flashback uh, when Vernon screams at him for having somebody like that call uh, his home, mm-hmm. and uh, you know it—it's just—it's sad. Uh, it's sad to see that he grew up uh, in this type of a household, but yet you know he develops into the person that that he ultimately becomes, uh, you know, and doesn't really let it affect him as much. And I think. You know the the birthday cards, uh, the magic Hogwarts is is all uh, you know an outlet for him and being able to transform him into a much different person. And I'm sure on this show you've you've talked about how that contrasts with Tom Riddle, but uh, it's just mm. the the Dursleys are are nothing short of of abusive uh, to Harry, and yeah. and I don't necessarily know that. It's something. It's something that I probably noticed reading it for the first time, but I just don't think I noticed how much and 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 how just completely rude and disgusting they are to him. Yeah, it, it's it's such a small proportion of the entire story because it is you know only in the the first few chapters of a few of the books. Um, but yeah, when you when you do kind of zoom in on them like this, you really do realize how much of an escape Hogwarts was for Harry and yeah, what, what he was escaping from. Um, and yeah, it, it's not something you really focus on as, as a kid reading or, or when you are thinking about the stories as a whole, but yeah, it, it's kind of a, a shocking realization to see exactly how he was treated at home um, with the Dursleys each time. 
poor Harry. <laughs> and Micah, what to to what you were speaking about with how the you know Harry's been mentally abused throughout these last many years that he's lived with the Dursleys, uh, and kind of how the this chapter is is representative of for I think the first time proper because Harry didn't Harry did get birthday cards and letters last in the previous year, but he didn't receive them thanks to Dobby. So Mm -hmm. uh, this is the first time where he's actually having like, you know, a proper enjoyable birthday. We can only kind of semi count Sorcerer's Stone because the news was great, but the circumstances were not. Um, (laughs) So it's kind of, this is, this is the best one he's probably had in the books yet since that. And, uh, I think that's also a great because it's it's also worth looking at how this these these first chapters establish a tone for the whole rest of the book and the themes for the rest of the book. Um, And here, kind of the way that you spoke about it, Micah, speaks to, I think, a a depressive state that Harry is in, like he has been. Uh, he is understandably very depressed living with the Dursleys and this is a cute, like this is a cure for that depression to get cards and, and letters and love from his friends. And that's a big important piece of prisoner of Azkaban because the Dementors are going to be depression personified mm-hmm. and Harry has to, the the manifestation that he uses to fight them off is the love of his friends and his family. So this is kind of a microcosm of setting up those themes and ideas in this one chapter. Oh, I've never thought of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's no more proof of that either than the fact that he doesn't even remember that it is his birthday, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It just changes over to the next day and, and he's, you know, he kind of just, Oh, Hey, it's my birthday. And, And I think that shows, how he's been treated previously and and not yeah. just from what we've seen in Sorcerer's Stone and Chamber of Secrets, but even going back before yeah. uh, he learns that, that he is a wizard. Uh, it's, it's clear that the Dursleys have kind of made his birthday a, a pretty forgotten day um, for him. And what he receives is, you know, I mean, it's, it's no kid would want to get, right? I mean, like, I, I don't remember exactly what the Dursleys have given him over the years, but I'm sure it doesn't amount to a whole lot of anything. Yeah, I think it's a, it's like nothing for his birthday. And then Christmas is like a 50p piece or an old sock or things mm-hmm. occasionally. So, yeah. Yeah, this is his first proper birthday, essentially. And it starts with three owls, <laughs> which is kind of fun to start the third book. I know we, we've talked about the importance of numbers mm. before and um, three is a big one, right? Yeah. Um, so we've got Errol showing up, Hedwig showing up, and a Hogwarts owl shows up. Um, Which kind of represents the trio themselves. Mm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wrong. Hedwig as Harry and then Hermione as Hogwarts. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I mean, she uses the Hogwarts owls. Yeah. So Harry doesn't recognize what they are at first because the other two are supporting Errol. <laughs> Poor Errol. <laughs> Has he really flown all the way from Egypt? Like, no wonder he needs support. That's a very long way to go. <laughs> I was wondering if he flew from Egypt or if he flew just from the borough because the, the Weasleys are... I, 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 I couldn't tell if the Weasleys are back by now. I think they're still there. They're still there. Because and I, Ron's letter's writing as if they're in is, Egypt. As if they're so. there. Okay. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> so they took Errol with them to Egypt? I mean, sure. <laughs> yeah, why not? Do you, you you always take your owl on long vacations? Mm. He it's needs a vacation. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's quite quite the animal cruelty. Uh, it is unfortunate. Egypt yeah. to uh, to the UK, mm-hmm. uh, but going to your point, I, I kind of thought of this earlier as we were starting the show, and, and you mentioned these three birds. It, it is also kind of symbolic um, towards the end of the book uh, when Ron is injured and and they're supporting him, kind of coming back out of the oh. the Whomping Willow. So very nice. Looking at those birds as being. You know, you you had mentioned representative Harry, Ron, and Hermione, and I don't think that's by coincidence. Yeah. Well, and Ron is always the one of the trio that kind of needs the most support, too. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> well, and then we get to a parallel to the end of the book when uh, Pigwidgeon shows up mm-hmm. uh, and is super active and super excited and super flying around, just like, I mean, the opposite of Errol, right? Yes. <laughs> At this moment. <laughs> Isn't it so nice that Ron gets so um, many new things in this book? <laughs> Finally, <laughs> he starts stepping up into his own a little bit more in this book, I think. And that's yeah, this nice. is a good book for Ron. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the other thing I thought was speaking of long journeys, though, I guess not quite as long, but I just love that Hedwig. It's implied that Hedwig specifically went to France to <laughs> find Hermione to like make sure that Harry had a birthday present, which reminds me of. When Harry sends her in Order of the Phoenix to go peck them until they send him letters. Yeah, I guess that's the parallel. Hedwig is just like an attack bird half the time. Like, wow. So that's interesting, too, because that that kind of uh, messes with what we've talked about before with owls. Because we've discussed before that, you know, the joke that, like, oh, why didn't Voldemort just send Harry a letter? He would have found him immediately. Like, you know, these the way that owls work, you write the address and then the owl just knows where to go. But in this case, Hedwig didn't know where Hermione was, but she found her. So mm. without direction, like, it's not like, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe Harry just casually was talking to her and was like, I think Hermione's in France, but he wouldn't have known that. So... <laughs> I yeah. I don't know how she found that she found her like she went to a completely different country and tracked I, her down. I don't know. I get the sense that Hedwig is supposed to be exceptional. Like she's supposed to be special and kind of better than the average owl. Hmm. If that makes sense like I mean she just does so many things that kind of put her in almost like a special place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think she's quite independent com- compared to most of the other owls. Yeah. So, yeah, she she has but her she own also, and does her own thing. Yeah. She also seems to have a special bond with Harry though mm. that other kids don't necessarily have with their owls because their owls are just like here, here's the post, you know. But Harry I think treats Hedwig a little bit more like a pet and they've like created this bond. Mm-hmm. And so she's 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 smart and she's concerned about mm-hmm. him. So she's like, last year you didn't get anything. I'm going to go make sure you get something this year. I think Hedwig's more like a family member in in the way that pets do become like part of your family. Like, yeah, she's the first thing that Harry properly cares for. Mm. Yeah. So she cares That's for a great him point. back. Totally. And really one of his first connections to the wizarding world. And he spends a lot of time with her 
during the summer. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. that that's his that's his closest friend, I would argue, outside of Ron and Hermione. So it it's definitely makes sense that that he would form such a strong bond with her beyond just because I, I think it's even mentioned in Deathly Hallows that it, you know when she is unfortunately killed that uh, that 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 was really his first connection to to the wizarding yeah. world yeah do you think post owls like communicate to each other because i just realized hermione ordered uh her gift for harry from an owl order service so maybe like that's how she found him was she ran into some of these owl order owls and they were like oh yeah we just delivered this thing to this girl <laughs> in france and Hedwig's like it's hermione and goes <laughs> She'll need someone to take it to Harry. I, I, think, I mean, I think that's possible because I don't... The way that Rowling uh, portrays owls in the book are like are in no way indicative of how owls really are. No, oh, no, no. stupid. No, yeah. They are very... Like, yeah, they, and then I know they, they, so they talk about they that. So why they have the saying, wise old owl? Is that, <laughs> is that, is that complete BS? Yeah. Complete misnomer. Like, I think it no, is. No basis to it. Well, because owls, like, if you watch any of the behind the scenes of the films, they talk about how it was just, like, the most frustrating thing that she used owls in the books because they had a really hard time training them to do what they needed them to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, So... Which is why they started using some CGI ones which is why the owls became CGI after a time, because they just couldn't do it anymore. Um, And they're just very impractical to have on a set. But Same thing with Cursed Child. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, right. they did have that owl on opening night, didn't they? Yeah, that was a terrible idea in the first place to even have <laughs> yeah, a owl. Yeah, that one, I don't know how someone let that Let, let that, that go that all the way to rehearsals. That's a little weird. <laughs> but, yeah, Rowling's portrayal of owls are very, are, are very much in the veins of, like, you know, classic children's literature and television series and cartoons. These owls are not, like, real animals. These are very much, yeah. like, the way that... I, uh, that's They're more kind like of, familiars. Yes, which is funny because yeah. Rowling has a piece on Pottermore about familiars where she's like, "They're not familiars," <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> but the you know that's why I've always enjoyed Mary Grand Prix's drawings. Being a U.S. reader of the Potter books, because her drawings are like a, a kind of perfect balance for me of cartoonish and realism. Yeah, um, and they kind of set the tone for me of what potter looks like in my head so like her owls that she draws have a lot of personality to them that yeah. owls don't quite have uh so yeah i these owls are cartoons mostly for the most part these are not real owl behaviors yeah. i mean i i kind of like the sense that rolling i mean she's like okay magical owls are i don't know special smart or something you know that all of these magical animals somehow are like a cut above, kind of. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about like Crookshanks, even yeah. is going to be the same thing, you know. I mean, half cat, half measle, but like, there's still that like cut above of intelligence, you know. And it's almost like, okay, if you're a magical animal, you're you're better than a normal animal, which which feels almost Narnian to me, mm. you know. 
Yeah, um, that's a good comparison. There's that very specific, okay, there are like mundane animals and then there are like talking or special animals and there's a big difference between the two of them. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like with, um, Wizard of Oz as well and, and Wicked where the animals are turning. Yeah. 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 I was just going to mention Something that. Something bad. There's, that's <laughs> there's a <laughs> there's a distinction of that made in in the original Oz books uh, between like regular old like and, and in the fifth book it's revealed that all animals in Oz can talk and Dorothy turns to Toto and she's like um so why haven't you been talking and he's like because I didn't want to and she's like oh my god you can talk <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah that I think that's she's she's <laughs> that just reminds me of spider <laughs> so she's pulling can on. animals talk in this word dimension <laughs> I don't want to freak about <laughs> so she's pulling from pretty like traditional depictions of animals in children's yeah. literature with these and yeah. the funny thing too that Rowling does with the she does a lot a, this a lot with the owls and with a lot of things in Harry Potter and it's something that I don't feel like people acknowledge enough in Rowling's writing but Rowling has really good she has a really good sense of slapstick and comedic timing yeah. with her writing she almost like writes yeah. comedic <laughs> pauses and beats into her into her style uh mm-hmm. And she does it here with the birds, where, like, when Errol gets there, he just kind of pauses, and then he just, like, face plants on the bed. And <laughs> it's 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 great how she writes these things out, because she gives you a really good picture of how that would look. She has almost a kind of... It, I'm not surprised that she wanted... Uh, I think she wanted Terry Gilliam from Monty Python to direct originally, mm-hmm. and I can see why, because Monty Python has excellent... Time, comedic timing and i think yeah. that's yeah. what she was thinking of when she wanted them for harry potter um because they would have gotten that kind of humor they would have gotten her humor immediately mm-hmm. yeah. yeah as so. proven by when the weird in the previous page yes i'm sure <laughs> that's, kind of, that's the kind of stuff they love that's like straight out of monty python <laughs> yeah we found the wish maybe burn her Oh, yes, a duck. She oh, must wait the same as a duck. What why besides witches? <laughs> More witches. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, geez, I haven't seen Monty Python for a long time. Uh, anyway, so and then we get a very sweet moment. I like that. Again, kind of talking about how Harry treats owls more as pets. She specifically mentions that Harry, like, picks Errol up and, like, takes him over to Hedwig's cage and, like, helps him stand up and stuff. Um, It's very sweet um, that Harry even is like, oh, my gosh, this bird is going to (laughs) die. And Errol hoots his thanks. Yeah. And I like how she always mentions, too, that, like, whenever Hedwig is being affectionate, she, like, nips or like nibbles on harry's fingers she's just like hello okay leaving now um and then harry gets to his actual presence the actual things that they've delivered Uh, and he opens ron's first and from ron he has a letter and a very important clipping from the daily prophet which again is setting up something very important that will happen uh in this book um Apparently everyone saw the Weasleys in Egypt. Mm. (laughs) Um, But let's talk about this because I feel like a lot of people have varying opinions on this. Personally, it always makes me happy that the Weasleys won and then decided to go visit Bill in Egypt. Like, they deserved a vacation as a family, you know? Ginny's had a very hard year. (laughs) But a lot of people think it's really irresponsible of them. What do you guys think? Yeah, this is a 
this is a pretty like intense conversation that has occurred within the fandom around this chapter uh because there's a belief on some people's part that the weasleys were irresponsible and that they should have saved the money or put it towards their children like specifically for their education and for getting them you know things that they need for the school year as opposed to or saving as an investment rather than spending it all immediately on a trip to Egypt. Mm -hmm. And, like, while I can kind of, like, personally, while I can kind of see that argument, at the same time, if you are a middle to low income class family and this happens to you and you are rarely, if ever, afforded the opportunity to travel, um, see the world... And have experiences that upper middle class to upper class families get to have more often. That's something that suddenly is accessible to you and you want to probably use it that way. In the U.S., the comparison that can probably be drawn um, is families who like want to go to Disney or Universal you know, it's mm -hmm. th those kinds of things are actually kind of seen as a rite of passage in the U.S. Like for for children is going to Disney and and, you know, in many ways, too, for a lot of families, taking their child to another country is also seen as a rite of passage. Kind of the first exposure to other cultures and uh, ex life experiences. So I feel like this was not irresponsible of the Weasleys, especially because there was also an element of reuniting with a family member who they don't get to see yeah. very often and seeing him at work. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't think that was, I don't know if that's necessarily entirely fair. I agree. Uh, and, and what is the, the counter argument that that's made? Cause you mentioned that there's a big kind of back and forth within the fandom about how they spent the money. Is it, is it just that they should have, saved it for, mm -hmm. for future use or put yeah that they're being irresponsible by not like using it for well and we've seen literally in the previous things. year you know molly saying oh we're almost out of flu powder how are we going to afford all of these school books we can't afford the kids new robes ron had to have an old wand last year which as yeah. is mentioned in his letter there was yeah. some money put aside so that they could get new things for them yeah, I think that's the thing. Like Ginny is the the youngest child who is now off to Hogwarts as well. So they've they've done all of the major expenses for for school in that sense. And yeah. yes, they're poor, but they're not poverty stricken. They have a house. They can get the things that they need, sure, second hand, but that's fine. Like it I I always value experience more than yeah. monetary items like I, I would rather you know if i'm celebrating a birthday or something i'd rather go and do something with my friends than receive really expensive presents or whatever mm -hmm. um and i i think the the experience of being able to go and visit bill and have a family holiday together whilst they're all still living with each other you know percy's leaving at the end of the year probably to go off and do his own thing it's it's a really important time for them to be able to do something as a family unit and to have the money to yeah. be able to do that together mm -hmm. is an extremely valuable thing um, well, and as he sounds like even Charlie came. Yeah. And that would be a big thing, too. You know, like they probably haven't seen Bill and Charlie for a while because they're in different countries and they're working and they probably don't 
they probably can't come home very often, you know, like, and so, uh, sorry, I'm trying to look up how much (laughs) 700 galleons actually is. And like, for some reason I can't find British pounds. (laughs) So it's really annoying me. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that's important, you know, that they get to spend time together and, and I don't even think they'll spend like there's money left over for a new wand and a, a few other things. Like they they probably do save some of it. Most of it's gone on the holiday, but even then, you know, they're visiting Bill. They're probably staying yeah. with him, so they're not spending too much money on that. It's it's wizarding travel, so they're not paying for flights. Probably they're paying for like flu powder <laughs> yeah. visit somewhere. Yeah. Um, like that's what I was gonna say. How much money are they actually spending on the trip itself? It, you raise a lot of good points that transportation probably the cost is minimal they have a family member that they can stay with and he's taking them around to show them all Mm -hmm. the different uh spots in in egypt uh based on where he works and um and it's been brought up but you know travel is one of the best forms of education that there is yeah the opportunity to go and do this it doesn't seem like the weasleys get this opportunity very often they get to do it all collectively as a family. Maybe the last time that they're all uh, in the same place together, with the exception of of the wedding later on in the series. So mm-hmm. uh, it, it also going back to oh my gosh, that's wow. Sorry, what I just that's just heartbreaking because you're right. I think that it's the last time they're really all together until the wedding, and then after that, they can't all be together anymore. Yeah. Um, that's really sad. <laughs> and and the point that was raised earlier on in the episode about opening up the world, uh, this mm-hmm. does that. And, and yeah. how would Sirius be able to spot Scabbers if not for their scabbers. trip? <laughs> so, so. Well, and we also have to remember, I think, that that information comes from Ron's perspective. And does Ron really know how the family finances are playing out, yeah. you know? Like... He's probably asked for like a fireball or something and has been told, oh no, the money's all gone. Like it's not actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and being, yeah. being a family that is used to, you know, hand-me-downs and, you know, using what they have rather than buying new things, when you suddenly are given lots and lots of money, you know that your 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 first inclination is not necessarily to replace everything that you have because you are already mentally yeah. trained to spend your money wisely and to penny pinch which they mm-hmm. th- which is what they were doing like they were being very careful with their money and you know using the the uh using the resources they already had and reusing things a lot so yeah, that their first inclination wouldn't be let's let's redo the house and let's buy all the kids new robes and wands and books. Like no, because that's not really a practice. That's also <laughs> no. to them not practical. Um, it's really dependent a lot on perspective. Yeah, and I think it's it, we yeah. see it again. You know, when Harry gives the twins the Triwizard money and they invest it in their business mm, and, and mm-hmm. start up the thing rather than splashing out on. Well, they, they do buy new outfits and things as well, but that's part of the business. So <laughs> yeah, I, I think, coke. yeah, it, it's an important lesson that yeah. Molly and, and Arthur are, are teaching to the kids as well, that yes, you can have these great family experiences, but, and still be wise with your money and, and, and still 
know what to do with it and and when when to have fun and when to invest yeah and when to invest in having fun <laughs> in the end it's none your dang business yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it's, it's their choice exactly yes <laughs> and i mean they have a good time and we get our first glimpse of the wizarding world beyond britain mm-hmm. and it's it's kind of gory <laughs> i mean um Ron mentions, like, there's all these cool pyramids and, like, they all have curses on them. And Mum wouldn't let Ginny go into the last one because there were all these mutated skeletons <laughs> of muggles that are broken in. And it's like, whoa, okay. <laughs> do you guys study the Egyptians in, like, elementary school? Yeah, we yes. do. So, yeah, same here in, in Britain. So it's it's the classic thing that, like, all the little kids love. So, yeah, it's oh, great yeah. to have it in the book as well. <laughs> yeah. And, again, just that funny, I mean, that's been a thing with, Egyptian archaeology and mythology and discovery all the time, you know, of there are curses on tombs, you know, mm-hmm. and it's it was a big part of it. And so to have that be like, in the wizarding world, there were curses on tombs and they really did, you know, <laughs> that's kind of fun. Yeah. Well, like you said, Allison, it, like a lot of people think of Goblet as the first time that we're starting to see international wizarding uh, stuff. But it's actually Prisoner, where we're getting a little bit of a peek. And a lot of the stuff that we're peeking at is going to foreshadow things that we'll learn a little bit more about. Uh, Definitely. And, but this this also gives us a taste, too, of not only, like, a- ancient magic, but ancient magic from a different culture. Because mm-hmm. when yeah. you explore Pottermore, as well as kind of some of the other writings by Rowling, including Quidditch Through the Ages and Fantastic Beasts... There's really an there really starts to be an explanation for how magic actually varies from country to country and mm-hmm. culture to culture, and that it's not just the way that um, the British wizards do things. Like there's actually a lot of variances with magic and how it works. So it's it's fun to see that open up a, a little bit here, and we even we don't get as much of a taste with it. Um, but Hermione even foreshadows France as being an important yeah. player. Um, and she talks about specifically like the medieval French wizards, you know. So mm-hmm. do you think she found Nicholas Flamel <laughs> or no, that, where his house used to be? I that, guess he's dead I, now. I, that's what I was kind of disappointed <laughs> with when I read Hermione's letter because I forgot that she basically so, – because of course she's with her parents. So she's probably not exploring full-on oh, full yeah. Wizarding World stuff. but. I was just like, oh shoot, because we, we we keep getting all these little tantalizing things about French magic and we didn't get anything here. We get the most of it in Goblet of Fire, and then again, we thought we were gonna get some of it in Crimes of Grindelwald and we got nothing. <laughs> and we didn't really. <laughs> so I've just France just kinda keeps being uh put to the side, but there's definitely mentions that there's some interesting stuff from that country. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Maybe next movie we'll find out more. <laughs> no, probably not. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> no, you'll be down in Rio. Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't count. Yeah. So bye, bye, France. Um, and then we get to Ron's kind of insert in his gift, his insert note. Um, and his gift is a sneakoscope, which is our first time seeing this little instrument. And reading it this time, Ron says, "Okay, it's supposed to go off when." Uh, there's someone untrustworthy around. And he specifically mentions it went off because 
the twins put beetles in Bill's soup, which is disgusting, by the way. <laughs> um, like, really gross. But that's not necessarily untrustworthy is it i don't i don't know that that word just isn't what i would use to describe that situation yeah and so that's kind of a weird distinction for the sneakoscope i feel like because the next time the sneakoscope goes off it's because scabbers yeah, is i think there, that's the important thing which i to guess notice is, is that this is the only time we ever really see the sneakoscope be still harry puts it on his bedside table and it stands there quite still balanced on its point reflecting the luminous hands of the clock like it doesn't move Every other time we see it is around Ron, is around Scabbers, and it's whistling like crazy and going off. So it could be that, yeah, that Ron thinks that it's the Beatles that's causing it to go off, but it could be that Scabbers is there. Sneakoscopes are just kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, we, we talked about this, I think, in the Goblet of Fire chapters, that the because the sneakoscope makes another appearance again in Goblet and kind of serves a similar purpose where it's just like, I'm going off because something's happening um but it's 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 not what you think it is and mm -hmm. the i think the the tough thing with the sneakoscope is that and i think the important distinction to be made is that this sneakoscope that ron bought is probably a cheaper like toy sneakoscope yeah versus it's not top of the line i mean they just no. want how much money to uh, <laughs> spend on something tells me a lot of that spending money was not given to ron because ron is not very yeah. frugal or wise with his spending money yeah. i because the it the implication is that the sneakoscope that say moody has in goblet of fire is probably a better sneakoscope which is why he turned, yeah. but and he claims he turns it off because there's too many. He breaks it, doesn't? Yeah. He? Well, he says he says he's not using it because there's too many. Like it wouldn't work in Hogwarts anyway because there's too much. It's of kids lying. He's like, there's kids lying about homework, yeah. right? And he claims that his yeah. sneakoscope would be as faulty in the area as a weaker sneakoscope, but the implication is that it would go off because he did something naughty because he's not really yeah. who he says he is and it's not his sneakoscope. So, because that's yeah. the other thing too, is how does the sneakoscope even identify who it thinks is being untrustworthy based on who owns it? Because in that case, yeah. it was doing it for the, t like for Bill's, like for Bill's sake, because the twins put beetles in his soup. But also, and I think Hermione mentions too. Well, it's that kind of doing it in general, because right? Because around. of Scabbers, or because yeah. Scabbers was around. But then Hermione so also maybe because Ron bought well, it. Hermione, Hermione also mentions later in the book that that it goes off when, like, Ron's like, it was going off the whole time that I was trying to send it to you, and Hermione's like, is that because you were doing something naughty? And he's like, well, yes, because I wasn't supposed to use that owl, but um, I didn't do anything wrong, and so. <laughs> Wizards have a perception that sneakoscopes will just go off all the time, which makes them about yeah. as useful as a remember Which, all. yeah. So, why do they even have them? It's just... <laughs> well, and half the time they just ignore yeah. it anyway. It's like a car I mean, alarm. We see throughout the whole rest of this book. Yeah, it goes off <laughs> and Harry's just like, eh, shove it in some socks and it'll yeah. shut up. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> they don't even use them. It's basically like... like a magic eight ball. It's just one of those little kind of gifty things that you give away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you did bring up a good point that I bet Molly and Arthur gave each of their kids a little bit Spending of like money, extra yeah. pocket money. And I bet Ron used his to buy this for Harry. Which is very Aww. sweet. Isn't that nice? 
which is cute. <laughs> but it's a terrible gift. <laughs> it is. And they ignore it for the rest of the time. Yep. But equally, so. Harry never gets anything frivolous. Like, he gets stuff for school, he gets stuff... Like, that's true. He never really gets anything that's just for fun, so it's quite nice to have a, a bit of rubbish Until every now and then. <laughs> yeah. Hermione comes through. Until this big year, time, he gets. Though. Yeah, man, yeah. Hermione yeah. is killing. Hermione is the best gift giver in the history of gift giving. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and I love that Harry automatically assumes at the beginning he's like, "Oh, it's probably a big book that she wants," you know, like, and then he's like, "Holy cow, this is the best thing," you know. <laughs> yeah, she always sends him um, things like sweets and and stuff that like and books that when she does send him a book it's about something that he wants to read like about quidditch or things yeah, like that yeah. like she's she's a very good gift giver which i do not she think understands it's acknowledged people. enough yes she does yeah and she's very she's distinctive i think when we hear what she gets both of the boys for christmas she gets them like different things of mm-hmm. sweets so she knows what they like she's not just like here's this like i think she gets Ron chocolate frogs and Harry birdie bots beans or something, you know, like something that's different that for each of them, she's not just like, these are my gifts for my friends in general. <laughs> well, and there's a dual purpose to Hermione's gift as much as there is with Ron's where Hermione's gift narratively is setting up Harry's value of the Nimbus 2000 and what's going to happen to it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because... And sets up some of the perfection of the firebolt, mm-hmm. I think, because he uses it when he gets that to, and he can't find anything wrong yeah. with it. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's a, that when, because it's coming from Hermione too, there's a, that, that connects her immediately in the first chapter to the subplot about the firebolt. Um, and what is probably one of the worst treatments she gets in any of the books by Harry and Ron um, for something very petty, especially considering that she got him this gift. Uh, so yeah, Hermione's Hermione's great. Yes. Good job, Hermione. And the fact that she, like, is getting the Daily Prophet delivered and was just like, oh, owl order service. Yeah. I, <laughs> like, can you imagine her parents being like, "What? what's happening right now? It's funny because reading Hermione's letter, I think it's supposed to come off as just a, you know, a a tiny bit pedantic where she's just going on and on about, you know, oh, these fascinating things in France and blah, 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 blah. But honestly, I love her letter better than Ron's because it's <laughs> it, she's going into more thorough detail about what she's doing and she's staying more connected to like she's she because Ron takes the wizarding world for granted he writes to Harry in a way where he's just like yeah there was some cool stuff blah 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 I don't care and then Hermione is just like there are some fascinating things about the wizarding world let me tell them all to you in three bullet points and i just love that <laughs> Hermione Hermione's I, I in a way is more fun for the reader because yeah. She's more relating to the reader's experience of wanting to know more things about the wizarding world. Um, so yeah. she's more thorough. And I think she also, Ron doesn't mention that he's talked to Hermione. <laughs> but Hermione's like, Ron said this and this, and he doesn't sound too happy about it. And he said Percy's head boy, and you know, that's going to be annoying. And she, so she's like, let me relay all the news that Ron might have forgotten to t- tell you in his mm-hmm. in his letters. Yeah. So when we get back together, you're not confused. I like, too, how Rowling... This is something that I think she does to reinforce the role that the narration plays in the story. Because Rowling 
after the after we get the flashback of what happened over the phone through the narration through Harry's perspective rolling posits that Ron probably told Hermione what happened on the phone and that's why she didn't call. Yeah. And we are meant to take that as a definitive truth because we have no other alternative presented to us. So when Roll and and Rowling does this a lot through Harry's perspective and through just the general narration in Harry Potter where if a definitive answer isn't presented She'll give us sometimes through narration, sometimes through a character's thoughts, or sometimes even through dialogue. A character will pre- will posit uh, a solution, and then we have to take that for what it is because there's no other solution. And what she does unless here, unless it's the crimes of Grindelwald, unless it's the crimes of Grindelwald, we'll talk about that later. But the the uh, in this case, this is one of the instances where she actually reinforces the value of that of that guesswork because Hermione confirms it through her letter. So I feel like in a way she teaches the reader to trust assumptions that the characters mm-hmm. make, which is really clever not only because it make it gives us a reason to trust the narration when there isn't another alternative presented, but it also tricks us into trusting the narration when she lies to us um yeah mm-hmm. for for the it's sake of the mystery though, because i don't know that you would think that hermione would even look to call the dursleys just given what she knows about them but yet mm-hmm. as you point out she does kind of confirm in her letter that she decides not to do that uh, based on her conversation with ron uh, I also find it interesting, you know, we were talking about the Weasleys and, and them making this decision to go to Egypt, that so much is made of this, but yet Hermione mentions that she's on holiday with her parents and nobody gives it a second thought. She's like, <laughs> yeah. oh, Hermione's on vacation. And I mean, is that because her parents are dentists and probably make a fair bit of money in what they do? Uh, mm. I don't know, but I just, I find the... You know the fact that both of his friends are are off on holiday, and there's a lot of time spent analyzing the fact that the Weasleys uh, took this lucrative trip, but Hermione does the same thing with her parents. Yeah, Paris is not inexpensive. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, We've been so, told that you're poor, so you have to only act poor. Whereas right. if you've got a little bit of money, we yeah, don't know what you do. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, again, listeners, it's none your dang business. <laughs> let them live their best lives (laughs) and harry doesn't get to travel anywhere poor harry Um, (laughs) i think hermione recognizes that in her letter as well like like you were saying the idea that she's um she is on a muggle holiday she's with her parents in france rather than really in a a magical place like like the wheezies are but she recognizes that harry is probably feeling that disconnect from the wizarding world like she is so in her letter it's not just telling him there's some interesting magic stuff here and i've been getting the daily profit but it's almost advising him on how he can still feel connected so you should it's basically telling him he should be getting the daily profit to feel more connected with the wizarding world um which we later know that he does um isn't that a perfect the ring theory connection to order yeah (laughs) (laughs) When he's getting it all the time and 
being angry about exactly. it. Well, and Hermione also like has is the one who not only who has suggested it here, but she continues in order to suggest the value of like because when Harry tells her that he's been getting the paper, she says. Do you read it cover to cover? And he says, no, I only read the front page because that's where the important stuff is. And she's like, that's dumb. You don't understand how newspapers work. And <laughs> like, but that's, 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 that's what she's saying here is she's saying like, you should get the paper and read things because reading things teaches you stuff. And then lo and behold, he kind of took her advice, but he still didn't get it by Order of the mm-hmm. Phoenix. So she's, there's a setup also, that here a little bit. Her note about her homework. Where she's like, I've rewritten my whole essay and it's two pages, it's two rolls of parchment more than Professor Ben's asked for. <laughs> As Harry had just been working on that essay and was like, eh, I'm not going to finish it tonight. Never mind. <laughs> he should just take her two extra pages or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> she could share one page each with Ron and, and Harry. There you go. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> But then Harry turns to the third package and letter, and this one is from Hagrid, which is very sweet. <laughs> is it? Um, <laughs> well, the thought is very yes, the sweet thought that behind counts. it. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry. Just how the fact in the letter that Hagrid's like, this will come in handy next year, and Harry's first thought what is, did- what did he get now? <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> I, I, I was a bit shocked this reread because it's been a while Be- yeah. and i think it's because the visual in the movie is it's did so a, strong it did such a good yeah. job of becoming so iconic and i was just at universal studios and i literally saw that book everywhere but yeah they've got a lot of yeah, new merch well yeah there's a lot of now. the monster book appears in a lot of different places in the park but it's, that too. it's funny because in the book, canonically, it's just a green leather book. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. was like, oh, that it's just a book. <laughs> like it's a it's a rude book, but it's it's just a book. Um so that was kind of a funny callback for me to the to the visuals that Rowling went with and how, you know, sometimes we go after the movies for the choices they make. But in this case, I feel like the movie made a stronger choice than Rowling did. Yeah. Um, Cause there, there's no, that the book doesn't have eyes on it. It doesn't have teeth. It's it, the, when it snaps at Harry, it's not Harry. It's, it's just, <laughs> it's just closing its pages on his hand. It's not biting him with teeth. Yeah. It's no just a book. Torn pages and things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a lot different than what the movie ended up with. But the movie, I think, for the sake of a strong visual, made the right choice. Yeah. yeah. I think, And I can always only hear the sound yeah. of that. <laughs> I think when we, when we see it in um, Diagon Alley, it does, it's described as in cages and things as well, isn't it? Or is that a movieism as well? Yes. Yeah, they're... Yes. No, it's described as being in yeah. cages and the shop owner, like, almost cries yeah. and like so it does has seem to, to go poke them all a bit and... more monstrous perhaps in the book itself but yeah the the movie version of it is very well done to visually tell us that it is that monstrous well yeah and the um, book i think yeah. it's still mentioned in the in the original book that they're they're gnawing at each other and they're tearing their pages yeah. each other's pages yeah out. so there's still that and element, fun fact but... um working at the national archives in the uk now as i do um 
fairy books were a thing um, <laughs> in, in medieval times um, because <laughs> their you know book bindings are literally just leather. They're, they are just mm. um, animal skin essentially. Sometimes they didn't bother removing the fur from some of the books, so there are furry books in in the oh. archives that would be very appropriate That's for awesome. the monsters. So, fun fact. There you go. <laughs> it's a good fact. Um, it's Hagrid personified, though. That's what I was going to say. At yeah. least the version mm. that we see in the movies. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny because I was just at an event earlier this week for the new ride that's opening up down at Universal. Oh yeah. And w- one of the things that they gave away in kind of their little goodie bag was that book. And it's actually quite terrifying uh, <laughs> just, you know, as a little toy that, uh, you know, you, you stroke the spine and it starts going nuts and, and it makes a lot of noise. So uh, I think that <laughs> the movies just did it because they knew that they were going to be able to market it and sell it and yeah. have people buy well, it. Down yeah. the line. I don't, I don't really know what you do with it though, quite honestly. Like, you could probably scare your, your cat or your dog very easily. But I have an <laughs> older version of it that um, of that toy. It's pretty large, and I, I, you, you, when you open, when you successfully, you have to. It, it, it almost, it, it almost is treated like a, like a, like a safe or a locker, because once you mm. open it. They, like once you stroke the spine the right number of times, it'll open up and there's like a little kind of indent where you can put little trinkets and things. Oh, that's um, cool. And then it oh, locks back cool. up. But uh, yeah, so that that's one way you could use it. <laughs> They've also been using it um, at the parks I've seen lately. They have yeah, journals that are shaped like those. it. So you open it up and it's a journal. And they also have a, a phone case mm-hmm. that is like a, a flip kind of phone case where you can store cards and your phone in. Mm-hmm. So they're just all over that one. Yeah. I do wonder how Hagrid went about choosing this book, maybe as opposed to Fantastic Beasts, uh, to to teach the students with. I don't think it was a hard choice. Maybe there wasn't enough of what he wanted in Fantastic Beasts. And he was like, these are all boring. Let's find something with oh, more I, exciting I think creatures. Doesn't he say that he thought it was funny as well? Yeah, he does. Yeah. I think that the – like it's – Harry's on the right track with what he's – like his thinking about why Hagrid got it. And Hagrid yeah. does pretty much say, like, this one looked like more fun than the other ones because it could eat you alive. And that's appealing to me. So, like, that's, yeah, <laughs> it's between all the regular books and then this one. Yeah, Hagrid would find this to be a riot. Yeah. My question is, though, what causes a monster book of monsters to become active? I feel like it's kind of random because I was like, OK, how how did he get it? attached to an owl and the owl made it back with it you know and it didn't like eat through the paper binding it shut you know i'm just i'm just confused about what will activate it and what won't it seems to be touch like to some degree like if they're if they're left alone long enough they go kind of dormant but then if you if you touch them, that like if you physically touch them, that seems to aggravate them. What's interesting too is we never see, and in Harry's case right now, he can't, and none of the students technically can do this. But I don't know, would a spell work on them? Could you hit it with a spell to knock it out? Like, could you stun it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the video games, you can. <laughs> I, don't... I guess it's the age old <laughs> question is it alive? Is it alive? <laughs> that's legit for this question is it well i'm assuming that it needed a charm to be to become this kind of book in the first place yeah 
I Which guess. is a very weird thing for the like the the author must have yeah, requested that publisher. a publisher put a charm on the book. <laughs> they were like, "Oh, this will be hilarious." <laughs> <laughs> Somebody out there has the same exact sense of humor as Hagrid. <laughs> I wonder if it's a bit like putting a, a cap on a hawk. You know, like you you cover its eyes and it goes oh. quite kind of dormant and and um. So maybe yeah, you, you'd stroke the spine to make it kind of fall asleep, and then you can wrap it. And because it can't see anything, because it doesn't really know what it is, it's kind of fine until you open mm. the package. In which case, it wakes up because it can see you and <laughs> attacks. Because <laughs> we know that later, when all the rest of the kids pull theirs out, they've got like belts around them yeah. and spellotape tape and all sorts of things. And it's just like, well, what's strong enough to hold this thing together, you know? And what's... And the shopkeeper doesn't know what to do with them. Which is weird. Yeah, that is. <laughs> like, does the publisher not send a note being like, here's how you handle these books? <laughs> I guess not. I don't know. I think that the, when you think about it from Haggard's perspective, what what may have been a better choice would have actually been to present them with the books on the first day of class rather than yeah. rather yeah. than send them to them because or have them go buy them because they're in in when you think about it actually it's not a bad practical test for how a student needs to learn to work with a wild animal because the idea that you have That's to figure true. out a way to tame it and in the end it is a relic like and way more so in the book than the movie, it's a relatively harmless thing. Like, a book mm -hmm. snapping its pages on you isn't going to feel great, and you may get a paper cut at most, but it's not going to, you know, the book can't harm you otherwise. Um, it can kind of just True. nip at you. So it, yeah. it's, it's, not a, it's, it's kind of a clever test for the students. What'd they do with them after? <laughs> what do you mean? Like, after this year, because we never see them oh, again. Well. They let them eat their own selves. They put them all in a little. They put oh, them in a, in a in a ring, and they just battle it out for the last last <laughs> book. It's just very efficient recycling. Yes, <laughs> uh, but just talking about how this chapter sets up the rest of the book, mm -hmm. I think it's representative too of Hagrid's ability to be a teacher mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. his teaching style, and that. Mm -hmm. Not that he's not good at and no and, and knowledgeable, uh, but I think that he's just not. I, I don't know. What he are your puts, thoughts of him as a professor? Like, I, I, he's just not. He does. He's not of that mindset. I don't think he puts the cart before the horse with his teaching style. He's too eager to get to the result, and he doesn't always yeah. prep the students properly yeah. beforehand. The monster book is also actually. Like you were saying, Micah, with what it foreshadows, the monster book is actually a great foreshadowing of of the hippogriff. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking exactly yeah. the same thing because yeah. it's it's the Me same too. thing. It's the same concept where you have to figure out the secret to tame it, and it seems to be with most magical creatures that tends to be the case. Like That'll what be is a one weakness? <laughs> yeah. What is what is the secret to get it to you know be tame? Like it with with unicorns, it girls probably need to approach it first. Um, we've seen, I think, I know we've seen some other ones like that too. Play some music to Fluffy. and Play some music for Fluffy, yes. Get the, yeah. Give the Nifflers a yeah. piece of shiny. Fantastic Beast, the Zawu, yeah. he just has to like pet it in the right mm -hmm. spot. <laughs> yeah. Like... So there's always like just a, a, a weakness that has to be exploited to get the animal to be mm -hmm. tame and that definitely speaks to, and, and it sets up 
you know, again, Haggard kind of doing things a bit out of order. He he shows them he shows them how to deal with a hippogriff, but he doesn't really give them enough. Like, especially with Harry, he's just like, all right, I showed you once. Come on up to this very dangerous animal and try it. And (laughs) Harry gets lucky. But then Hagrid doesn't account for the fact that other students like Malfoy may not necessarily, that there's an easy thing for them to exploit in that situation. Yeah. Well, I think Hagrid's, one of Hagrid's problems is he forgets how, like, more vulnerable and fragile Mm -hmm. the students are Mm -hmm. compared to Mm -hmm. him. Because we know that Hagrid's half giant, so he he's got like thicker skin, and so he probably doesn't get hurt as much, and he's tall, so he probably can handle bigger animals, you know. And I think he forgets that these thirteen-year-old kids aren't really in the same position. Well, and to be fair, also on top of that, um, Madame Pomfrey can basically fix everything, so you always have her exactly. as a safety net too. And the beasts that Hagrid shows the students. As far as I recall, and listeners, feel free to correct me on this and do the research more thoroughly, but I don't think he shows them anything above a class three. Um, I don't think so. He's not, I mean, you know, Hagrid loves doing dangerous stuff, but as far as what he's doing with the students, he's not doing anything above the level they should be competent with. He's just not always doing it as thoroughly as he needs to. He just, he just, it it, bless his heart. He just gets so excited. (laughs) And Lupin shows him some fairly dangerous creatures this yeah, year does. as well. It's like it's not just Hagrid. Yeah, um, yeah. Lupin shows him the ones that are like trying yeah. to kill yes. him. Actually, <laughs> Hagrid just shows him the ones that he's like, these are cool creatures. You know, Lupin's like, this thing could kill yeah, you. This thing wants to kill you, and it wants to. <laughs> yeah, care of magical creatures is going to be a thing <laughs> in this book, and also at the very end of the chapter, Harry turns to his Hogwarts letter. Just his last thing to open. And he finds our first mention of Hogsmeade. Um, and yet another example of how the world is going to open up beyond Hogwarts yeah. starting in this book. And Hogsmeade has become all of our second favorite places, I think. Yeah, first, <laughs> home of the Hogshead, where Aberforth is a bartender <laughs> and he has his goats. At least one pet goat. You know, it was interesting. I was looking back, uh, I think the last episode that I was you on. You were on that episode, yep. Uh, 179, yeah. when you were talking about uh, Deathly Hallows, chapter 28. And the title was actually more than just goats. <laughs> and this was in uh, 2016. So it's been it's been over three years since I've been on the show. It's been a wow. minute. Yeah. <laughs> just a minute, yeah. Hogsmeade, Hogsmeade has been foreshadowed in the previous books. It's been mentioned, I think, by name, and Hagrid has Hagrid's mainly been the one to talk about it. I think he's but, just said in the mm-hmm. village, it's, right? I don't think we've gotten the name yeah. of it. I think we've gotten the Hogshead before, yeah. but I don't think we've gotten the name of Hogsmeade. Well, and this is the first book, too, right, where Harry goes to... Um, he goes to Hogwarts the traditional way on the train, so this is the first time he's going to stop in Hogsmeade yes. Station. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, the Hog- Hogsmeade. Well, they stop there first year, yeah, too. But then get on the... But it's the first um, time he's going to get on the... Yeah, that's right. That's true. The, uh, they do. The so he's been there before. Carriages. Yeah. So he's he's been on the outskirts of Hogsmeade. <laughs> yeah, he's, never he's seen it, there. but not actually yeah. gone through it. <laughs> yeah. Hasn't gotten to explore yet. But he will this year. Well, and that'll be a whole... This this is probably one of the things that's intru- that's introduced that's going to be a whole big deal because 
the Hogsmeade stuff is the impetus for Harry to sneak out of school and get more directly in trouble with Sirius and the secret pass learning about the secret passages in the Marauders map. So that's the Hogsmeade is kind of the gateway to all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's too, it's, it's kind of a symbol of like wizarding communities Mm -hmm. because all Harry really knows is Hogwarts and the borough, but Hogsmeade is, is, is a wizarding community. And I think wizarding community is a big part of this book because of, the fear of Sirius Black and the backstory of everything that happened, you know, the community is a, is a big theme in this book. And so we have this little microcosm of this all wizarding village and how they react and how they have to deal with this supposed murderer on the loose, you know, how that's going to interact later, you know? And that's going to be the place where Harry gets the information bomb dropped on him. Yeah. Um, so. I think it's also important to note that this is the first time that parental permission has been needed for something and it's the first time that <laughs> Harry but it's, it's the first Sorry. time that Harry is um experiencing restriction based on adults rules and um and and the idea that Harry as a as an orphan has unfortunately got disadvantages compared to some of the other kids around him even his best friends. Mm. Um so it, that really sets up the idea of, you know, the the Sirius and the Lupin and the Marauders backstory within this first chapter as well. The idea that he needs Vernon and Petunia to do something which he knows is going to be very unlikely and that's going to cause problems because, yeah. Yeah, and I had a big issue with this in particular because if for no one else, Dumbledore knows yeah. the relationship that exists between And McGonagall Harry- as well, like... Yeah. yeah, quite honestly, mm-hmm. it, it's unfortunate that McGonagall can't be the one or Dumbledore can't be the one to give him the permission that he needs to go to Hogsmeade. Uh, I would actually argue that he's he's safer in that type of an environment just given the number of students that are out there. Some professors are there as well. Uh, there could have been a much better job done of, of allowing him to experience it because it's not fair. You're You're preventing him from, you know, being a kid. Uh, for yeah. for several reasons, you know, one because you know that his family is not going to, you know, Vernon almost relishes in, in the, the fact that he is preventing Harry from doing something that he really wants to do, and then, you know, um, because uh, he's being supposedly tracked by Sirius Black, uh, you know, so it's it's almost like he's being imprisoned by the Dursleys and by. Um, the staff at Hogwarts. I do think that um, Dumbledore or McGonagall probably would have signed yeah, the form I was as gonna a say guardian that too. had it not been for Sirius. Yeah. I, um, this this is yeah. the, I think, Prisoner is following in the examples of the adults dealing with things very badly in Harry yeah. Potter. And yeah. it's it's done kind of... It's it's done really well in that it's from uh, the perspective of children who tend to always think that adults are doing things badly. So <laughs> you don't take it quite as seriously and you kind of take it as that casual like, oh, yeah, the adults, you know, they're doing what they think is best. They're just trying to have everybody's best interests at heart. But as you go through the series, especially once you get to five – and the end of four and five, and then through five, you realize that, oh, like the adults are just bad at making decisions. Like they're very poor at this and that <laughs> they are often presented with 
like very stark choices that they have to make and they aren't always in the best interests of the students. Mm-hmm. Um, Starks don't make good choices either, just for the record. <laughs> this is a totally different series. <laughs> He's just that's I think that's a big theme in Harry Potter. It's a great point because I feel like as the series moves on, one of the characters that we spend a lot of time really talking about and analyzing, particularly as it relates to decision making, is Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's a lot of controversy that surrounds him and, and the whole pig for slaughter and you know the, the, him being not just you know really the uh, the master planner but the master manipulator and I think that goes to your point about just decision making overall for a lot of the adults in the series you realize particularly when you read this when you're older is that they're just as infallible as or just as fallible, I should say, as as kids are in, uh-huh. in their decision-making, maybe for different reasons. Uh, but we just talked about Hagrid and, and his decision-making not being probably the best um, for, for the class that he's teaching. So I just, again, going back to that theme of, of you know, reading it when you're a bit older, you definitely have a much different perspective on things. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I think that's why we frequently compare... Harry Potter to series like Unfortunate Events or to books by Roald Dahl because those kinds of children's books kind of relish in the idea that that adults are very bad at making decisions and that kids are smarter than them. Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. and Harry Harry Potter takes a more balanced view of that by trying to explain the motivations by why adults do the things that they do. And that they're not always the wisest things, but that they make bad choices perhaps based on previous experiences that they've had without accounting for the experiences that the young that the kids are going through. Um, mm-hmm. And in this case, yes, it was a bad decision to not just let Harry go to Hogsmeade or find find an alternative. <laughs> you know, if if he did go to Hogsmeade to send to send an adult with him or just something, they could have done something more than they did. I mean, they start having Aurors track him in book five. You know, they could have probably done something like that. Yeah, they. Yeah, there was, there was an there was an alternative, and they just didn't think about it because they were. And I, I mean, really, too, and Dumbledore. That we we find this out about Dumbledore in this book, but the Dementors are a terrible idea, and Dumbledore doesn't want them there. Um, yes. So, uh, and when you think about it, you know, if you just think about it for a second, it's a really, really terrible idea. Um, it just doesn't make any sense to, especially when there are things like Aurors, um that can take care of these problems. I think it shows at least in the Dementors, and maybe in this too, the the kind of fallibility of making all your decisions based purely on fear and, mm-hmm. oh, we're scared, so we have to have a strong something, you know, strong protection against it. Um, and that sometimes causes more issues than it solves, mm-hmm. which seems to be the case in both of yeah. these situations. Um, and that's kind of unfortunate. It's all well. I th- I love how because we were talking at the beginning of this chapter that you know there these first three books do have a lot of the exposition issue, and it's not till four that we break that pattern uh, a little bit more. And there's still exposition in Goblet. Uh, there's a, another whole chapter where Harry's just we just don't know what's exposition. Yes, well, and, 
I think, goblet. I think to <laughs> prisoner's credit, though, the way that she's doing the exposition, as opposed to chamber, where the like I said, the action literally just stops. Like Harry's having his really bad day with the Dursleys, and they talk about what they're going to do with with the Masons that night and all of that, and then Harry just goes and sits in the garden, and the everything stops. And there's just mm-hmm. two pages of this is Sorcerer's Stone, <laughs> and yeah. then we get here. And what's uh, what what's done so well is that Rowling uses the cards as part of the exposition to give. She uses the cards to give voices to the characters who aren't physically present, and then she yeah. uses that space yeah. to summarize each of those characters and who they are. through partially through their voices Mm -hmm. so it's it's done i think a lot more successfully here than in a lot of the intro chapters Mm -hmm. yeah and part of the reason why you just don't get that in goblet is because you're in a totally different location focused Mm -hmm. on a totally different character Mm -hmm. well and which is cool once this this kind of happens in chapter two i believe of goblet when harry wakes up and he writes his letter yeah. to Sirius, and there is a little bit of that, but it's it's starting to slowly kind of fade away. And I think even in Goblet, there is a point, and I don't remember exactly where it is, but there is a point where Harry, something happens, and I don't remember what, but Harry is kind of unfazed by it compared to how he usually is with magical things. And he even notes in the narrative, it's even noted in the narration that not much surprised Harry these days with the wizarding world, but on occasion he was still surprised. And (laughs) I feel like that's why these summaries kind of slowly fade is because Rowling grows the narration and the writing with the reader. Yeah. And I think Prisoner is the last kind of like intro book, you know, like if you, if you haven't caught on by the time you get through Prisoner, then you yeah, there's really You're no not point in catch starting. With you know, like you can't just you pick it up. No, yeah. <laughs> and prisoner really develops that because it, I mean, we start diving into backstory. We start diving into how everything in Harry's life ended mm-hmm. up this mm-hmm. way, and we don't necessarily get a lot of that in Sorcerers or Prisoner because it's very much what's happening right now. Um, but prisoner really goes back in time and says, "Okay, here's how things fell together." To end up with this situation and it's just going to go from here. You know, it's more complicated than just what's happening in the present of the book. And I think, so it's almost like if you haven't picked it up from here yet, go back and start over because <laughs> what's the point, yeah. you know? Yeah. The prisoner's the last one that maybe can stand on its own. Like we were talking about half blood can a little bit in terms of how it starts and intros you into things but it's and it's it is in some ways self-contained like prisoner in that Voldemort isn't the end goal but Voldemort is so much still a part of that story that you do kind of need the essentials from the first three or you're not really gonna get it and that is where we leave Harry reading his letters or looking at his cards and going to sleep and it's very nice. It's very Before sweet. Before we leave it off, too, I would like to talk. I know the film adaptation is a longer discussion, but I think what's <laughs> worth saying about it in from this chapter, because 
um, listeners, I'm sure sure you'll remember back when Eric was hosting the show, he had lots of strong feelings and still does to this day about Prisoner of Azkaban <laughs> as a film adaptation. And I have as much strong opposing views uh, to Eric's mm. views. But really, yes, he and I frequently go back and forth on this <laughs> so one. Was, but, would you say that it's your your favorite film of the series? Yes, I think it, it is my favorite oh. film of the series. It's my favorite book and it's my favorite film. And I know for Eric, it's his favorite book and his least favorite film. Yeah. Well, and I would say for me for a while, uh, it was the same way. But as I've watched Prisoner of Azkaban more and more, I actually like it more and more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, not sure why. I and and certainly not to to cut you off, but I think the the big piece that is is lacking from Prisoner of Azkaban, which I'm guessing you probably agree with, is the Marauders' backstory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there could have been a lot more of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's and it's t- I do think that's like totally a fair point of contention for people. I get why it's cut, but I also get why fans are upset about it. Um, and look. You're going from the whimsical world of Chris Columbus in the first two films who's done countless you know, children's movies and you're, it's flipping. You know, the, the, the narrative is changing, right? You're, it's getting more mature and I think that Alfonso Cuaron took a you know, just completely different spin on things and maybe that's why people just didn't react the way that uh, – they were hoping to to the film. Yeah, I I think what's what's interesting with that change in tone visually in the films is that uh, and and Eric frequently talked about this on the show and I think this is actually totally a fair point is that especially when you just examine it from this chapter kind of like what we were saying at the top of the show this chapter is oddly comfortable and mm-hmm. like sweet and very very void of conflict and the first chapter tends to be of harry potter tends to be what sets the tone for the book and it's kind of bizarrely in spite of the intense dark imagery that prisoner has of you know we have werewolves as a parallel for you know terminal disease we have the dementors as parallels for depression and Despite that very literal dark imagery that we get in this book, overall, I think people tend to enjoy Prisoner because it has a pretty pleasant tone. Um, It still kind of fits actually more in line with the first two than it does, say, four and five. Are you Um, talking about the movie or the books? The book. Yeah. Part of why – to me, it's my favorite book, not just the Marauder's backstory, Mm -hmm. which I – really enjoyed is 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 lupin right yeah because lupin Mm -hmm. is really the first father figure that harry has and the first mentor Mm -hmm. that harry has and he learns through lupin the foundation upon which he is going to be able to defeat voldemort which is defense against the dark arts and that is what made this book so interesting to me like there's there's a lot of the you know like there's a lot of puzzles to be solved. There's a lot of cool things that J.K. Rowling does when you know, in terms of writing about um, the Marauders and and being an Omega and and all that stuff. But I, I, to me, it comes down to that piece of it and having um, a character like Lupin uh, that really made the book it, central to the series because it's very important for Harry moving forward. Yeah, I think there's. 
there was kind of a choice with these elements and tones that were presented to Cuaron, and he recognized that where he was at the point where if he included it all, it was going to be a bit of an uneven and too lengthy movie. And he made it, and he made the mm -hmm. choice. And his choice was, I'm going to go with centering this on Harry and his, and what you were talking about, Micah. Even though we lose the Marauders backstory, what's still there is Harry's yearning for a father figure and also learning to somehow be independent of that father figure and rely on himself, um, mm -hmm. to take, to take care of himself. And I think that's, and that's, I think what maybe Quaron identified was that balance between the lightness and darkness of Prisoner of Azkaban, um, that he mm -hmm. de decided to take that to the screen to visually make it dark so that mm -hmm. at the end, when Harry succeeds, when the film kind of brightens up again, it's, there's a, there's a really stark visual contrast. So you understand that, um, it's, it's, it, Rowling has more room to play with that tone because she's writing a book. So she can oscillate between that um, totally. as much as she wants, but in a in a you know two hour film, yeah, you it, only have so much time. It's true, but I, I think there were certain things though that could have been explained that weren't. Oh yeah, loop in yeah. when Harry runs into him and Snape in the hallway, and Lupin clearly knows what the Marauders map is, but yeah, there's no kind of explanation to the viewer as to how right and yeah. You... Yeah, it feels like they they were still trying to find a way of tying it in, but then just kind of gave up in some mm -hmm. scenes of, of of the film. Yeah. Um, like there are there are looks and there are clearly there's clearly more to the story that we can see happening in the film, um, but then mm -hmm. that's just never actually explored in any way. So it it works as an Easter egg for people that have read the book, but doesn't offer anything to people who are new. Yeah, and it's never explained throughout the series, right? Yeah. Who who Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs are, and and I think if you know you could have taken a couple more minutes to do that in Prisoner of Azkaban, it probably would have appeased a lot of the people who have a larger issue with the Marauders kind of being, you know, not fully included into the series. Yeah. Even just, you know, a, a couple of minutes of Sirius and Lupin in the Shrieking Shack explaining some of the backstory a little bit more would have would have done, but it doesn't go anywhere. Um, in terms of this chapter, though, it's Lumus Maxima. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's interesting as far as... problem in itself. As far as this chapter gets brought to the screen, it's actually split into three different scenes. It's, it's at the beginning when Harry's yeah. doing his homework under the covers... It's it's in the uh, uh, Leaky Cauldron when Ron is telling him about their trip, and yeah. and with the, and uh, with the monster, monster book of monsters. monsters scene, yeah. So they the the scenes are there, like the, all of this is there. It just all gets transposed to more visually uh, interesting, yeah, yeah, areas which makes a film. lot of sense. You can't really see these yeah. and letters in in, in no. the same open yeah. style, yeah. And this chapter would be kind of boring. I mean, like we said, there's not mm -hmm. much happens, you know, there's not much conflict or mm -hmm. anything. And so it's like, if you tried to just transfer this right to a visual medium, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't work. But reading it, it's lovely because we get all this information and this, you know, character building and stuff. Well, and as much but, as I have grievances with Lumos Maxima as a concept, especially when you have 
Lumis Salem from movie number one. And that's just a warring spell in itself. But and, the, and, and they're not allowed to do magic outside of school. Not allowed to do magic outside of school. And that's literally kind of said by Vernon, uh, like a scene later in the movie. Um, it's it, it's still it's more it, like visually again. It's just more interesting to have Harry doing yeah. a spell than it is for to watch him just writing an essay. Like it's it's very it's very brilliantly done. It's. It's kind of, and you know, if it, it the way that Quaron does it is, yes, very much meant to be. He's very intentionally call, hearkening to puberty in the scene. Um, that's that's what he's doing. If you haven't ever seen another Quaron film, then maybe that's why you you may not have picked that up. But Quaron is big on that in his <laughs> movies. Um, so he's also speaking to a like a new level of maturity with the opening scene. Um, mm-hmm. That interestingly, this book is not th- this first chapter is not necessarily doing. Um, mm. It's not quite, and I think that again is where where uh, Eric's argument comes in. And what I'm basically trying to say is, Eric, I'm throwing you a bone on that one with <laughs> like, it's, you're not Don't wrong about the tone on that one. Like that's still, Don't that's legit, that. <laughs> but that's okay. Maybe he won't hear this episode, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think there's like, there's, there's obvious reasons I think why those changes were made, but there is, it is interesting that such a, it's, that a book filled with such dark imagery still manages to actually be kind of one of the ones in the series that fans tend to gravitate towards is like, I'm going to pick this one up for comfort reading. Um, yeah. Cause it makes you feel good. It's all about relationships. Yeah. There's a good visual uh, of it. Mary Grand Prix drew this scene or the end of this mm-hmm. scene um, in a special art piece. And it's, it's really fun. It includes all of the things we talk about. It's got the monster book of monsters and the broomstick kit and all of the cards and, Errol and Hedwig hanging out in the cage and um, it's even got Harry's little countdown to September 1st on his wall and it's very nice. Yeah. <laughs> his hidden his hidden flashlight under his bed is there too. Yeah. Lots There's, of detail. I think it's a like it's a, a really good encapsulation of the tone that of of yeah. comfort and like pleasantness and con- con- conflict free a storytelling that's very unusual and enjoyable about this first chapter for Prisoner. Mm-hmm. It's very nice. Yay, Prisoner of Azkaban! <laughs> let's just do the whole thing. <laughs> Yay! Let's read the whole thing right now. Except for we can't. Never mind. So I guess we'll just leave it here then. <laughs> we'll just stop at the end, where it's happy. <laughs> um, and all that's left for us to do then is to thank Micah for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for coming back. Is this Time five, time six? It's um, a good question. It's too bad I it's not the know. seventh time. I just know, yeah. That would have <laughs> been cool. Well, thank you for being here anyway. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. I always enjoy coming on the show. And uh, let's not wait as long, was it three years, I said? Uh, <laughs> until the next Guess time. Let's not do that again. I mean, maybe next time you come, you'll have read more of the Harry Potter books. (laughs) I just read the first chapter of each book. (laughs) Hope hope for the best. (laughs) Yeah, that's enough to get it. You should definitely make sure that you're reading the first chapter of Goblet of Fire so you can listen along to our next episode, (laughs) which is The Riddle House. (laughs) Perfect segue there. (laughs) That was actually a great segue. That was really good. I definitely planned that. (laughs) 
And listeners, while we have chosen our guests for most of these Chapter 1 episodes, we have some special guests coming up for those, just like we had Micah for this one. Uh, we still have opportunities after these special anniversary episodes for you to be on the show. Uh, to do that, visit our website, alohomorepodcast.com, and choose Be On The Show, follow the instructions, and send us your audition. You can also visit the Topic Submit page, to tell us what you'd like to hear us talk about. And on that submit page, you can also uh, find the directions for how to submit an audition if that topic is something you would like to join us for. You just need a microphone and a pair of headphones. If you're chosen to guest, we will walk you through the rest of the process once you are selected. And if you just want to keep in contact with us between episodes... We're on Twitter and Instagram at AlohomoraMN. On Facebook, facebook.com slash open the Dumbledore. Our website is AlohomoraPodcast.com. Our YouTube is youtube.com slash AlohomoraMN. And you can always email us at AlohomoraPodcast at gmail.com. And once again, we'd like to say a massive thank you to Sam Omen for sponsoring us on Patreon. Um, and you guys out there can sponsor us as well. You just go to patreon.com forward slash alohomora. You can sponsor us for as little as $1 a month. Be sure to check out our higher tiers for access to things like Dumbledore's Office, episode sponsoring, decals, chapter readings with Michael, and vintage alohomora t-shirts. Thank you again, Sam, for helping us out with this thank episode. You, and I have to say, too, thank you, uh, in addition, special shout out and thank you to the listeners who sent me happy birthdays for my birthday. That was very oh. that was very lovely to wake up to happy birthdays from our I listeners. did. Didn't I? <laughs> oh I'm probably. I think it was on Facebook though. Yeah. Yeah. You did. Uh, Good job, Micah. Thank you. <laughs> birthdays are magical, you're, you're as welcome. we've just seen in this chapter. Yay, birthdays. You'll appreciate I when I was at Universal Studios, I stopped by the fossil store because I needed a new bag. And I got this fancy leather bag, and I had R.J. Lupin imprinted on it. Oh, <laughs> oh, that's so cute! So now it's official. I am Lupin. <laughs> <laughs> you always have been. It's fine. I do my best. <laughs> <laughs> so all that's left for us to say is, I'm Rosie Morris. I'm Michael Harley, and I'm Alison Sigurd. Thank you for listening to episode 268 of Mora. Open the Dumbledore. Like I hear, basically. Sorry, that was weird. Yeah. Now, can can I mention something? I mean, before yeah, before we wrap this up here, because you know, I, I know that I um, allowed myself a little bit of liberty earlier with um, Mrs. Longbottom, but <laughs> I, I would just like to point out the first note that Eric made about this chapter. Oh no. And it wasn't even referenced at all, um, funnily enough. Um, oh, you can't mention <laughs> this. I didn't mean this at all. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. What's oh. Go ahead, oh Micah. God, God. what do you mean? It's in quotation marks. It's <laughs> Joe wrote that. J.K. Rowling wrote 
Arthur is the only one who can get him off. <laughs> Amos, Amos said this to Arthur. You're right. How Don. does he know that? I, <laughs> because Amos tried. Is that what you want to hear, Micah? Look. No, I don't. I'm just reading the doc. I'm being a very willing contributor to the show. I know. I was noticing a point that you skipped over, um, you know, during your analysis, and I thought it was only appropriate or inappropriate for that matter. Hello, Alohomora podcast. My name is Eileen, and in response to the podcast question of the week for episode 144, my simple answer is look at Hermione to explain. She is in the same year as Harry and Ron, yet knows way more magic than either of them. She took more classes, but she is also always reading. And any time she encountered something she didn't know, she ran off to the library. The first time we meet her on the Hogwarts Express, she confesses that she knows about Harry because she read about him in a lot of books. Hermione is always taking the initiative to better inform herself by reading. And it is in this way that I propose that Hermione and Dumbledore before her got to be such clever and knowledgeable people. Thanks. Love the show. Hello, I'm Dora, a.k.a. Dora Nympha, on the website. In the Fallen Warrior chapter, Harry calls Hedwig his, um, his, I quote, companion, his one great link with the magical world, whenever he had been forced to return to the Dursleys. Now, I wonder, had Hedwig survived... Would they have taken her along in their journey after the wedding? Or else would she have appeared on a windowsill at Grimmauld Place or outside the tent, um, even if they decided not to, not to take her along? Would that have meant that we would have got more news from the Wizarding World and more consistently when the trio was essentially cut off and completely isolated from everyone else in canon? Um, and how would that have changed the story, if at all, do you think? Love the show, and thanks for your chance to contribute. You're all amazing. Hi, this is Jessica, Jess Fudd from the forum. I just wanted to comment on the podcast question of the week. Um, I think that Snape's main motivation in this chapter was that he finally had the upper hand on the Marauders. We've never seen that um, before in his life that we know of, and I think if you look back at the flashbacks that we see later in book five or whatever, um, He's acting most like his adolescent self in this chapter. I certainly think that other motivations play into it, even if Caleb says that's a cop-out. Clearly, he's a complex guy, and he has a lot of reasons for being angry. But I think his main motivation is he has the chance to get the people who got him all through his his childhood. And I think that is what um, fuels his anger and the way that he carries himself in this chapter so, anyway, that's my thoughts about the podcast question of the week. Love the show. Keep it up. Bye.